0: Hey, we need to be praying for our elders. Uh, this meeting Thursday night is really important as we think about the future of the church, um, the direction that we want to go. So please take time to pray. Uh, also, pray for next week. Brea Alinda Wildcats are league champions. And next week, uh, we are playing our playoff game. We'll find out at noon today who we play. Uh, Somebody came up to me and said, uh, hey, as the pastor, don't you feel bad that you're only mentioning like one high school? My response is, I'm not the pastor. Okay, so um, Jeremy Muehlhoff had the best game of his high school career. He he had five catches, should have had six, but a referee said his foot wasn't in bounds. I took care of him. So we are, t- <laughs> we are talking about first things. Not my first things, but the Apostle Paul. What would he say based on the book of Romans? The very first thing was, do you believe the gospel is powerful? Paul believed Everyone was within reach of the gospel, that God had been preparing the hearts of everybody to receive this good news. We created our lists, our lists of people that we are indebted to that don't know the gospel. My list includes uh, people from my Ph.D. program back in North Carolina, neighbors, uh, family members, as well as people I train with. Um, and different stuff like that. I owe the gospel to these individuals, and hopefully you're coming up with your list as well, to share with them the God of love. But that brings us to our second question. Paul says this, how does God demonstrate his love towards you? How does he do that? Boy, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, We want to experience the love of God, but we might be skewing how God loves us. Today, we're in love with love. Americans love the idea of romantic love. I'm with the Biola Center for Marriage and Relationships, so we study cultural trends when it comes to marriage. The number one reason Americans self-identify that they get married is because of love. It trumps everything, finances, desire to have a family. They want to experience a certain kind of love. Now, that certain kind of love is what's going to get us in in trouble when we try to apply that to God's love. Today, we have a hyper view of romanticized love that I think is causing us a lot of problems. Exhibit A, scene from the movie called The Notebook. <laughs> okay, couple quick observations. One, I've been married for 25 years. Noreen and I have never had a disagreement in a rainstorm. I'd be like, Noreen, I agree. We need to resolve this. Can we go inside? It's like, it's, it's pouring rain right now. Second, I don't think I've ever kissed her like that. Like two, two grizzly bears coming in. I had braces for three years. I would not risk that. That is like, that's coming in too hot right there. That's kind of crazy. Third observation, that's why I shaved my head. I was tired of people taking me for Ryan Goslin. It just got old after a while. <laughs> Most importantly, how did she know he loved her? Because of a dramatic display of love, right? A, a letter every single day. And that's how she knew that he was still committed. This over-romanticized view of love, that we want something dramatic on a continual basis, always something bigger and better, is going to cause us big problems in how we perceive God's love. Now, Paul absolutely wants to convince you of God's love and for it to have a deep impact on how you live your life and relate to other people, but he's going to start in a very bizarre place. He's going to do a lot of preparatory work before he gets us to the point where we know that God loves us and how we can know that he loves us. So take a look at this really interesting passage from Romans. You see, just at the right time, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So Paul is absolutely saying God is demonstrating his love towards you. By the way, in the Greek, that word demonstrated is in what we call the present tense, which means it's something that happened in the past but continues to happen. It'd be like my, uh, I've been married 25 years, so 25 years ago Noreen and I got married, but, but that's something in the past But should communicate to her love in the future, right? Every time we celebrate our anniversary, it should be a reminder of what happened in the past. That is how Paul is using the word demonstrated. Something happened in the past, but it should encourage you on a daily present basis. Now, what should, you, what should encourage you? Paul says this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what Paul is saying. To the extent that you know how bad off you were and separated from God, that's to the extent that you'll understand his love. John Stott, a theologian, makes a similar point. Stott says this, only against the backdrop of human sin are we able to form a true picture of how great God's love for us is. Now, I think this is where we're a little bit weak as Americans, right? So let me ask this question. How many of you became a Christian below the age of 10? Show of hands. Now, in one way, that's a huge blessing, and it's great to grow up in that context. But it can be a weakness in the fact that you never fully embrace how bad you were. Now, I didn't become a Christian until age 13, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to live a life of, like, crime, you know, before age 13. So there's always a subtle thought in our heads, we weren't that bad But we got saved anyway. Paul is about to obliterate that perspective. He wants to say. Let me show you from God's perspective. How he viewed you when you were in your rebellion. So let's take a quick survey. Of how God views us. He uses certain words. For example. You see just at the right time. When we were so powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Now what do we mean by ungodly? Um. It means, in the Greek, a lack of reverence. It means a a disrespect, right, by things that you do. So if President Obama walked in this auditorium, let's say, all of us stand as Americans. You do not sit in the presence of the president. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, Independent. When the president of the United States walks in this room, everybody stands. If you didn't, it would be incredibly disrespectful. God is saying, in your fallen state, you were disrespectful towards me. You did not recognize me for who I was. I am the creator of the universe. I am the one who creates you, and you didn't stop to recognize that in your rebellion. Notice what Paul will say in Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, remember I said last week, people know there's a God. He has hardwired it into the DNA of what it means to be a human being. Remember, James Boyce said we live in a world of billboards that constantly say God is alive, He's real. So even in post postmodern Europe, we know that it's repressed, but there's an awareness of God that is even in some of the darkest places that we need to go to as missionaries. But also, we didn't give him thanks, right? God, at least you get thanks for, hey, you created me, you gave me breath, you gave me common grace, you give me sun and seasons and rain so that we can have crops, but we never stopped to thank God, we were in rebellion against him. We were disrespectful towards God 24-7. Now, what is the result of that? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. This is what Paul says. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you were not turning away from this ungodliness. You were storing up wrath. For the day of wrath, right? The judgment of humanity. God's going to judge us, right? That word storing up in the Greek, it means to grow ripe. It means to to build in pressure. Sometimes it's used of a word like water building up behind a dam. So just to show you the power of what was coming towards every non-Christian, let's take a look at a scene from a movie called Dante's Peak where there is a a, a volcano that erupts and it it causes a massive flood. Let's take a look at that video. So that's God's wrath coming right at humanity. God watches what happens 24-7 in a world that's turned its back. He watches all the war. He watches rape. He watches murder, sex trafficking. Um, Spousal abuse, he sees it all 24-7. He's a righteous God. This isn't that God has a bad day and he gets really hacked off and is going to do something about it. This is the righteousness of God. This is what Jonathan Edwards talked about. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? So this wrath is building up. Now, why is ungodliness so important? Because from it flows a bunch of different things that all cause problems in your life as a non-believer and in the uh, history of humanity. So Paul goes on with his survey of different words, and this is what he says... At the bottom, uh, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, right? So what does it mean to be a sinner? In biblical terms, it means you're guilty of two things, not one. There are two types of sins, not one. There is what we call the sin of omission. There are things you're supposed to do that you have not done. You are to love your neighbor. You are to feed the poor. You are to help the foreigner. You are to help the homeless. And many of us are just consumed with our daily lives, We don't much think about Syrian refugees. We don't think about the poor in Brea, right? We're busy doing our own lives. Those are called sins of omission, things you were supposed to do you didn't do. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we don't do it. Then there's sins of commission. These are things you do you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to cheat. You're not supposed to murder. You're not supposed to lust. God sees all of it. And in God's economy, your thought life, you're held accountable. Jesus is very clear to say, if you call a person a fool, I say you've murdered that person in your heart. If you lust after a woman, I say you've committed adultery of the heart. So God is watching this 24-7, the sins of humanity. What's going to be his response? His response is going to be... Now because of your stubbornness, because of your ungodliness, because of the fact that you're a sinner, you are storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Paul continues in verse 10, he says, You were God's enemy. It's not that we wanted to say to God, hey, live and let live. You live your life and I'll just leave me alone. No, no, no. We were like Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre is one of the great atheist thinkers. I mentioned Camus last week. Well, Sartre was his contemporary. Sartre um, hated the idea of God. He he called God the cosmic voyeur. He he hated most the fact that God would be watching us, seeing everything that we did and we would not have freedom from God. So imagine, God, looking through a peephole and sees everything that Sartre does and Sartre hated that idea. He wanted his freedom from God. So he said, if I had the ability, I would kill God. And that's what God is saying is true of the human race. It's not that we, we don't like the idea of God. We despise the idea of God. We want our freedom. The sexual revolution of the 1960s. Don't you dare judge me by tradition. And don't you use your Bible to judge my sexual actions. I want to do what I think is right. Uh, Foucault, another atheist thinker, said, Sex is life. So you do not put any hindrances on my sex life, right? We wanted freedom from God. And guess what? We got that freedom from God. And the result of that is because of your stubbornness, because of your ungodliness, because of the fact that you're a sinner, because of the fact that you're an enemy, what's happening? All of this wrath is being stored up and will be unleashed on the day of wrath, right? Uh, The day of the judgment of humanity, Now we get to an interesting word that is the word powerless. You couldn't stop being a sinner. You couldn't stop being an enemy of God. It was part of your sinful nature. It was part of your DNA. So let me give you a silly illustration of how you're powerless. And then let me give you a very sobering one. Um, I dated a girl in college. We had our two-year anniversary. I took her to the Renaissance Center in the heart of Detroit. I went to Eastern Michigan University. Um, And so we go to the Renaissance Center. You have to book it like a year in advance. We're at the top row because this is our two-year anniversary. Well, I get sick. I get like this massive cold, and I'm taking all this industrial cold medication, right? I'm a Christian, uh, so I'm reading my Bible on industrial cold medication, and it's just, it's coming alive. I mean, it's like, wow. I was in the map section, like with the Dead Sea. It was profound to this day. So we go to this date. I'm sick as a dog, but we're going because you can't get your money back, okay? So we're there. Uh, I have a cup of coffee, and I sneeze a sneeze that I've repressed for 10 days. I sneezed in my coffee, it ricocheted, covered my glasses. I had this irrational thought did she notice? (laughs) I couldn't stop it. I was powerless to stop it, I was helpless. Now, let me give you a sobering one. So, I became a Christian when I was age 13. Uh, age 15, I became the vice president of our youth group. Went on missions trips, evangelism training, all this kind of stuff. Well, a guy named, we'll call him Sam, was my, um, he was the president of the youth group. Well, we did all this stuff together. We played football together. We did youth group together. All the time, he had a sexual addiction he never talked about. I never knew. He, we graduated. Uh, he went on to become a youth pastor at a very prominent church. All the while, addicted to pornography. He is taking church money, their money, to fuel this addiction. And one day he gets caught. By the way, he knew he would get caught. He knew that where he was looking at pornography at the church was being monitored and it was just a matter of time. He knew eventually people were going to put two and two together, that church funds are disappearing as well as personal funds. He knew it, but he couldn't stop. He was utterly helpless to stop. So it's not like you could just decide today as a non-Christian, you know, I think I'm going to live a better life. I think I'm going to be a better person. Well, you could to a certain extent, but ultimately you're still an enemy of God. You're still separated as a sinner and you have a sin nature. Now, what's the result of all of that? Again, it's the wrath is being stored up, right? But then in that moment when you're at your worst, right? When you know you're at your worst. This is what I think Paul is trying to say at the right time. Christ died. It's when you realize how bad off you were and you embrace that. You own that. That's when God says, now here's my reaction. By the way, what do you think God's reaction would be at that point? If I were God, and I looked at this world that you had destroyed and humanity, uh, one um, military historian estimated that if you took all of human history and added up consecutive years that we didn't have a war of some kind happening in human history, guess how many years we could eke out? 35 years. So we're constantly at war. We're constantly uh, doing things that God deplores, and it's killing us, and God's watching it. Now, what would be my reaction if I were God? i say, you made your world, you go live in it. You don't want me? Fine, done, you don't have me. That'd be my reaction. That was not God's reaction. God demonstrates his love for you when you are at your absolute worst by sending Christ and Christ dying for us. That was God's response. You talk about graciousness. For God so hated the world, he... No, God so loved the world in spite of ourselves, that he sent Christ to die. Now, Paul makes one interesting point that's kind of lost because of the language he uses. But Paul makes this very interesting point. For very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. The reason that's confusing to us is he's using classical Greek terms. So in classical Greek, the righteous was a person who would do what is right because that's just what a good person does. Um, I go to church. Not I don't necessarily want to go to church. It just looked kind of bad if I didn't go to church. Um, uh, I I, I give the poor a little bit every once in a while because I think it would look bad on me if I didn't do that kind of stuff. So a righteous person in classical Greek thinking is you're doing what's right, but your heart might not be really in it. You're just doing it for appearances. The good person is a person who actually does it because that's the virtuous thing to do. So Paul is saying none of us are going to die for the righteous person. It's just kind of uh, doing what he or she should do. But there might be somebody who would die for the good, virtuous person. Here's Paul's news flash. You were neither. You were not the righteous, and you weren't good. You were a sinner, and that's when Jesus died for you. Then he goes on and gives us even more good news. He goes on to say this, that you've been justified by his blood. I love that. So uh, the doctrine of justification is perhaps the most important doctrine of the entire book of Romans. And this is how we can define it. Uh, Justification is the act of God whereby he not only forgives the sins of believers. Right, so hey, that's enough if that's all justification was, that's pretty good. So all the sins you've committed in the past, I want you to think of the most horrendous sin you can think of, the one that you're embarrassed the most about your past, right? I exactly know what mine is, and if you ever read my journal, I'd have to kill you, okay? I know exactly what mine is. So God knows your past as bad as it is. He knows your present, and he knows your future. He knows All of it. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, all your sins were in the future. So you have been forgiven. doesn't matter if your spouse doesn't forgive you. doesn't matter if your kids don't forgive you. God has forgiven you everything. You've got the biggest mulligan you've ever seen in your life. I spoke with this woman. I I won't mention her by name, but she's fairly well known. She's written some Bible study series. And uh, I'll never forget listening to her. She got in front of a bunch of college students and she said this, Before I was a Christian... I so berated my husband, ripped him to shreds verbally, that eventually he committed suicide. He said, that's on me. And she started to cry at that point. She said, that's on me. I live with that. But I'm standing here as a Christian telling you that even that, God has forgiven me. And I I embrace that every day. So, men and women, I don't know your past, but you need to know God's forgiven you. It's gone. But it gets even better, because that's not the whole doctrine of justification, right? No, the doctrine of justification is this it gets added. He also declares them perfectly righteous by imputing the obedience and righteousness of Christ himself to them through faith. So, when God looks at you, what does he see? He doesn't see your sin, that's gone. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus. It's been imputed onto you. So when he looks at you, what does he do? He sees his son. See, that's why Paul's later going to say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing for God to be mad about. Why? Because all your sins have been forgiven. And when he looks at you, he says, Jesus. Boy, that's powerful. Now, what should be our response to this? Well, before we get to the response, there's even more good news. If you order now... You'll get Ginsu steak knives. Here we go. He says this. This is such a simple point. It's almost easy to just blow past it. Paul says this. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Think about that just for a second. When you were at your worst, you were an enemy, you were sinful, right? you were ungodly, you were helpless. God loves you enough that he sends his son to die for you. That's when you're at your worst. Now, Paul's point is so profoundly simple. So now, after you become a son and daughter, how much do you think he loves you? If he loves you when you were that bad, now that you're adopted into his family, do you think his love stops? Or do you think now you receive the full expression of his love? That's what Paul's saying. If Jesus' death while you were the worst, now what do you think his life will be like now that you're a son or a daughter? Now, what should be our response to this, I think is fascinating, Paul says, right? By the way, so God wants to demonstrate he loves you. Does he demonstrate it by the fact that he answers every one of your prayers? No. Does he demonstrate it in the fact that you're perfectly healthy physically? No. Right? I believe God answers prayer, but God is saying, if you want a testimony to what my love is like, I want you to look backwards, not forwards. I want you to look back at Calvary. That good news ought to be every single day helping you to realize how much God loves you. In World War II, um, the troops would liberate not only concentration camps, but orphanages. So you have these American GIs who are liberating orphanages with these kids who are really hungry, malnourished. So they had plenty of food and bread, stuff to give to the kids, but the kids wouldn't go to bed at night because they were fearful they wouldn't get a meal the next day. So the soldiers didn't know what to do. Uh, honey, I promise you, you're going to have breakfast tomorrow morning. You're going to have lunch. You're going to have dinner. We've we got snacks. You're going to be okay, right? But they wouldn't go to bed because they were fearful they wouldn't get fed. So you know what these G.I.s did? It was ingenious. They took little pieces of bread, put it in the hands of the kids to go to sleep at night. They said, hey, that bread right there is a sign there's more bread like that to come. That's what the crucifixion should be for us. That is the symbol of God's love. So Paul's later going to say in Romans 8, he's going to say, Hey, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give you everything else? If God gave you Jesus, he's going to give you everything else. Right? He gave you the greatest. He'll give you the lesser. Now, what should be our response to this? Before I talk about what our response should be and actually bring up the worship team, let me make two thoughts. One, what happened to the wrath? You became a believer. What happened to God's anger? What happened to his wrath? Did God just say, oh, what the heck? Forget about it. No. You know what he did with the wrath? One of the most important doctrines of the New Testament. We call it the doctrine of propitiation. It means this. God took that wrath and placed it on Jesus. He took the wrath of the entire world and placed it on Jesus. Right? What does John say? He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the entire world. I want you to think of the most despicable person you can think of. I want you to think of, I mean, uh, it's horrible what's happening today in the world of terrorism, right? With ISIS, we now think that that Russian jetliner, a bomb, was placed on board, and most likely it was ISIS who did it. I want you to think of the most despicable person you can think of. And Jesus died for that person. God's wrath was placed on Jesus for the people who were raped and the rapist, both. Now, you are not experiencing God's wrath because you received Jesus, but that wrath is still there for everybody on your list that you're writing. That wrath is still at play. Now, God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone. Ezekiel says, God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone, even the wicked. God does not delight in the day of wrath, but he's a righteous God, and this must be dealt with. So it has been dealt with for you, right? Now you're a child of God. All your sins been forgiven. You are righteous. You've been justified. What should be our response? This is what Paul says. I love this. Not only this, he says in Romans five eleven, but we should also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That word boast in the Greek. Uh, some of your translations might have the word exalt. It's this. Um, it's this spontaneous reaction. That almost just comes out of you and you, you can't even stop it. Let me give you a, a couple examples of this. One, uh, one of my great students at Biola University, she was awesome. She shows up one day before class. Her eyes are blotchy. She's been crying. She says, Dr. Milov, can I talk to you outside? I said, yeah. So we walk outside. She says, I'm just so sorry. This isn't like me. And um, I said, hey, take a deep breath. She goes, no, it's just, it's been such a hard month. And she's crying. She says, so if I take the test today, I'm going to bomb. I'm just absolutely going to bomb. I looked at her and I said, hey. The test is next week. She literally grabbed me, and we are hopping. We are hopping. She was like, "Ah!" And that's what Paul means by exalt. I mean, you think about what he's done; it just comes out. It's just like, "Whoa!" You got to be kidding me. Let me give you another example of it. This is my favorite one. So, 2013, the Iron Bowl. It is Auburn against Alabama. It is tied. 23-23. They're going to overtime, except Alabama has the ball, 1 second left on the clock. Coach Saban I have another word for him. It also starts with an S. He decides, oh, well, you know, why not? Let's try to kick a 56 year field goal because if we miss, we're going right into overtime. So why not let my kicker get a chance? He does it and kicks it. It falls short. An Auburn football player catches it in the end zone and decides, well, what the heck? I might as well try to run this thing back, right? If I get tackled, we're going overtime. He runs 101 yards and wins the game. Saban's face was priceless. (laughs) Now, I want to show you as an example, what does it mean to exalt, right? They were piping it live onto Auburn's campus in their gymnasium that was packed. So I want you to watch the reaction like, oh, they missed the field goal. Good, we're going over time. Let's watch Auburn's reaction to what happened. Just love it. So here's what Paul is saying. Listen, there ought to be times in your life, Paul's saying, when former enemies of God get it. They get it. This is what was coming towards me. A flood of God's righteous judgment was coming right towards me. And I was spared because I asked Christ to take it for me. There ought to be moments, Paul says where we simply exalt. The great thing about worship is, corporately, we reflect on what's being sung, and from it comes a reaction that is both cognitive and emotional. So as we sing this, let's pray that God would remind us of the great truths of the past that are to serve as little pieces of bread in our hands, that in fact, tomorrow's grace will be just as present as today's grace.